thank you for joining me on the Gibraltar Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Kushan Kupchand, and my guest today is none other than our Chief Minister, Ferian Picardo. We discussed things such as his personal life, training, education, finance, the past of the GSLP, and even some sent-in questions from individuals that decided to participate in the competition that Gibraltar Politics Facebook page was doing. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Hi Fabian, thank you for coming on the show. I genuinely appreciate it and it's an honor to have the first Chief Minister on the Gibraltar Politics Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I like new media. I like that we should do things in a different way and that we should reach a different audience. So thank you for the invitation. Thank you for coming on. I'm just, I'm still shocked that you said yes. (laughs) (laughs) I thought instead of going straight into policy for this interview, I've decided to actually ask you some personal questions because I feel we've already covered many of the issues in this um, election cycle and what's up to this. But I would like to ask you, why would you be a better chief minister than um, the GSD's leader, Daniel Fitton? Well, the easy answer to that question is that I have the experience of having been chief minister for four years. During that period, I've had to face probably the most aggressive Spanish foreign minister that has uh, tried to recover Gibraltar since the time of the of the dictatorship in Spain. But look, I'm also one who defends the fact that experience should not be the be-all and end-all. When I took over from Peter Carvana four years ago, he had 16 years of experience and I had none. So that answer alone is not a good reason to see me as a better chief minister than, than Daniel Fiesem. I think though people make a judgment about who should be running the affairs of this nation based on arguments which deal with the facts of our economy, the facts of our employment market, housing, health, all of the issues that matter to people. It shouldn't be about whether I like Fabian more or I like Daniel more, because it shouldn't be about personalities. It should be about how we deal with issues. So look, in in the run of play, I suppose, uh, to a very great extent in the past eight years, they've they've seen Daniel running a department in justice. They've seen me running Gibraltar from, from number six commonplace. Uh, and people should make up their minds based on how they think with we've each done. For me, it is not personal. I mean, I, I give uh, Mr. Feetham a very harsh run for his money <laughs> on his arguments. But uh, frankly, I have absolutely nothing against him. And I would ask people simply to, to look at, his, at what, we, what it is we're saying we would do uh, and not at who it is that's saying it. And what drives you? What um, led to the decision for you to get into politics in the first place? I had no choice. Um, I realized that I had something to contribute to Gibraltar at a political level when I was young. I had, a, I had a voice that was being heard and therefore I wanted to make the best of the opportunity that my voice was being heard to put my arguments about what I thought was the right thing to do or, or not do. Um, and therefore I, I wanted that from a very early age and therefore uh, I found myself in this stream of uh, political friends, of uh, decision-making, of presentation of ideas through political parties. Um, and I love it so much. It's in my blood. It's what I do. I don't consider it work. I don't consider it a sacrifice. You know, politics is the first thing I do when I go to, when I wake up and it's the last thing I do before I go to bed. Uh, it's, it's, as probably with every Gibraltarian, it's in my blood, but it's my job too. All right. 
although politics can sometimes get quite dirty. I mean, I'm sure you've heard about the comments that um, the GST have said that they thought it would be a clean election. What's your take on that? Well, I thought it would be a clean election. I'm the one who called for a clean election, you see, um, because the GST were getting very, very dirty indeed. Um, in fact, the GST have been getting dirty with their arguments now, uh, probably for the past two and a half years since Mr. Feetham uh, took over. Um, and it doesn't get much dirtier than the things that the GSD are saying. So Mr. Feetham is saying that I am prepared to, rest, uh, to recklessly um, risk the lives of Gibraltarians, whether uh, those Gibraltarians might live at Waterport Terraces or Harbour Views, Laguna Estate, Moorish Castle Estate, all the areas that he pretends knowing that he is not telling the truth. They could be putting at risk with, a, we could be putting at risk with an LNG uh, storage facility on the northwest uh, of the North Mole. That is to suggest that I'm reckless as to whether people die. My own son spends a lot of time on waterboard terraces and at Harbour Views. So Mr. Fitam is saying I'm reckless with people's lives generally, I'm reckless with the life of my own son, and all because of my apparent political ambition to build an LNG power station, as if this were the be-all and end-all of my political desire. Well, nothing could be further from the truth, but of course, nothing could be dirtier than to say that I am reckless as to whether people survive or die because of a particular government project. And of course, the second uh, worst insult that you could hurl at a Gibraltarian, especially a Gibraltarian like me who believes that the route to self-determination is paved by self-sufficiency, that they have somehow risked Gibraltar self-sufficiency by overspending, also something which is completely untrue. Um, and so therefore, I, I believe that Mr. Feetham has been very dirty indeed in the way that he has constructed his arguments. They are pernicious um, and that should have no place in a real discussion of what the issues before the electorate are today. Well, you mentioned um, spending just now. And I was wondering, do you think that all government-owned companies and all government-funded companies should have their accounts um, available for public scrutiny for all individuals or for parliamentary scrutiny as well? Yes, I do. Are they currently available for that? Yes, they are. So what's the situation with credit finance then? Well, let me tell you what the situation is because this is another area where Mr. Feetham is trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. Government companies did not trade before 1996. So in other words, the last GSLP administration had two or three companies that owned assets and had some employees and about another six or seven companies that only owned assets. And those companies uh, did not do trading. After the GSD was elected, the Gibraltar Development Corporation started to employ more people and more companies started to be incorporated that actually started to trade. So, for example, let me give you a high-profile example that you'll know about. Yes. The Gibraltar Bus Company Limited, right? That is a company incorporated by the GSD. There's a requirement in our laws already that all companies should publish their accounts. Whether they're government companies or not is irrelevant. They have to publish their accounts. That law was passed by the GSD, not by the GSLP. It's not a law that they invented themselves. It's a law which originates in the European Directive. So we now have a law that requires the publication of company accounts because Brussels requires that all companies around Europe publish their accounts. Let me tell you something else which might amuse you, given where the debate is today. No company accounts were published before the 8th of December 2011, despite the fact that it was a legal requirement and that it had been a law brought in by the GSD. So yes, your listeners would be right. 
the GSD brought in a law that government account that government companies should publish accounts alongside all other companies, and then promptly failed to comply with the law. The GSLP has complied with those laws and publishes the accounts of all government companies, and that includes Credit Finance Company Limited, which has which has its accounts published in keeping with the law. But we have gone further even than that. Every month we publish a balance sheet of Credit Finance Company Limited, which sets out how much credit finance is spent on loans, how much it is spent on the commutations of civil servants, etc., etc. So, anybody who believes Mr. Feetum's argument that we don't publish company accounts, that we don't publish details of what credit finance is spending, is having the wool pulled over their eyes by a politician who doesn't care a jot about the truth and is trying to create a new reality in which he can make an argument which is also perniciously untrue. So would the money and the assets under credit finance be considered a part of public debt? No, they wouldn't. And neither would the assets and uh, liabilities of the companies that Peter Caruana uh, made operate um, under the GSD. Let's, Let's be very clear. There's a very good reason for that. Before um, 2011, Sir Peter Kapuana had incorporated a number of companies that had taken loans from third-party banks. Those loans were not considered to be part of the debt of the government of Gibraltar. They're not a public debt. So the 20 million that Sir Peter borrowed to make an investment in his friend Nigel Pardo's midtown development, the 30 million that he borrowed on the uh, on the car parks company and the one billion pounds that the GSD was going to borrow through Gibraltar Investment Holdings Limited and in respect of which they were going to pay a 1% commission to oh, one yeah. particular individual. Right? So, Sana said that yesterday on yeah, the debate. And, and this, is, this is documented. This is not stuff that we're making up. Those were not public debt either. So what I say is that people need to understand in order to make a judgment, people need to compare what was happening under the GSD and what is happening under the GSLP, liberals, using the same yardstick. The yardstick which applied to Peter, the yardstick that applied back to us. If you apply the same yardstick to the GSD as you apply now to us, you'll find that debt by that yardstick has come down considerably, almost by half in percentage terms compared to the GDP. In cash terms, debt has come down by 120 million pounds. Look, this demonstrates that the reason why Mr. Feetum wants to change the way that we calculate public debt is because if we calculate it in exactly the same way today as we did four years ago, we have achieved the reduction of debt that we promised people we would achieve, although we have not halved, we have not been able to halve gross debt. We may get close to halving it between now and the end of the financial year, but we've made a good push in that direction, and Mr. Fitam has no argument whatsoever to raise other than to try and change the parameters, move the goalposts, and in that way, pretend to those foolish enough to believe him, those foolish enough not to do the analysis, those foolish enough to fall into the trap of comparing apples and pears and not see that it's a different fruit. Well, that's a lot of financial and economics talk. <laughs> I'm wondering... Do you Your think fault, you asked the question. <laughs> I'm regretting it now. I'm wondering, do you think there are too many lawyers, I know you're a lawyer yourself, or you were, um, do you think there are too many lawyers involved in politics currently? I don't judge people by the profession. I think different lawyers um, take different attitudes to things, you know, um, and 
I think having professionals in Parliament is a good thing. I think having people who are not professionals in Parliament also brings something very positive. So I think you judge people by their commitment and their desire to contribute something to to the well-being of Gibraltar. Lawyers obviously have a natural affinity with Parliament because Parliament is the place where laws are made and therefore lawyers can be quite useful in that chamber. All right. So I want to move on to education now, something that's very close to my heart. Um, I was wondering, other than just refurbishments and relocations, what will the GSLP Liberals be planning on doing to facilitate the process of skill, skill acquiring and um, learning in schools? Well, quite a bit. And uh, the, the place to start is human beings and human capital. You know, buildings are important, hugely important. And I think it is disgraceful that in 16 years the GSD did not invest in our schools. I hear them now saying all sorts of things about the investments that they wanted to see. And yet when I went to St. Bernard's, I found that that place was actually a Victorian uh, workhouse, exactly the same as it had been when I was a pupil there between 1976 and 1980. They talk about Bayside needing investment. That's because they didn't see uh, St. Bernard's. I, I don't think any GSD minister had visited St. Bernard's in the last four years that they were in administration. Uh, they also haven't seen a Bishop if they say that uh, that Bayside is the school that needs most investment. Of course Bayside needs investment. I was there between 1984 and 1990 and I love going back because it's identical to what it used to be 20 years ago. Nobody spent a penny other than painting it. Yeah. That's why I want to do something drastic to really rebuild it, to give Bayside its own rugby field and football field. All of those things are hugely important. But how does that affect the education of the people in these buildings? Well, what we did when we were elected was we took the teachers who had been put on permanent supply and gave them permanent employment, something which they deserved and made for a better workforce. What we're doing now, we're learning support assistants who are coming into the classroom to help teachers. What we're doing by extending the special educational needs facility at Notre Dame. What we're doing by moving St. Martin's to a new facility, which is not just about buildings, but about the facilities available to the children who go to that school, is all designed to ensure a better system of education. And the system of education needs also a shake-up as to the curriculum. So we're starting to teach Spanish at the age of four. We're starting to teach about the history and social and cultural history of Gibraltar in our schools as well. But most importantly, and I think this is essential, it's something we've worked with the GTA on, because we've signed a social partnership with the GTA, not this week before the election, as the GSD have done a year ago on May Day, One of the most important things is to make the system accountable. Now, in my view, the system has only been accountable at the end of the process when we declare GCSE and A-level results. But it needs to be accountable a lot sooner than that. There's been no challenge to the system because we have such fantastic GCSE and A-level results, except for the blip in Bayside results a year and a half ago that people haven't felt that there's anything to challenge. But there is a lot to ensure, a lot to be done to ensure that we have accountability throughout a student's life in school so that that accountability shows up whether he is getting the teaching that he needs given his special educational needs, which may be lower than average or higher than average. We also need to provide more for the children that can do more. And in the run of play, I think that we have achieved quite a bit. And I think one of the things that will be the the crowning aspect of all of that, apart from the buildings, the new sporting facilities, the additional teachers, the learning support assistance, and the help for special educational needs, will be that during the day, you should have a nutritional hot meal in school. 
the GSD failed majorly when they introduced the new school hours and failed to bite the bullet on that issue. We were committed from the year 2000 to introduce those meals. We've had to do a lot of work in our first four years. We couldn't fit it into that scheme of work. Now we will do so. And by the time I call the next general election, we will have hot meals in school at lunchtime. A very, very good thing as well, because for many people, and, and some lucky people don't realize this, but for many people, that hot meal in school at lunchtime Maybe the only nutritional hot meal that a child gets in any one day. I understand, I understand. Um, well, I was wondering because I understand why the education system in Gibraltar is currently tied to what the British curriculum is. But at the moment, GCSE students and A level students are currently learning to pass exams, not really learning because they're passionate about a subject or because they've taught, they've been taught to become passionate about a subject, but they're just learning to pass exams. Would you do anything to, in compliance with the actual British education system, so we would stay with GCS, GCSEs and A-levels so we could obviously um, reap the benefits of going to universities in the UK, but would the GSLP Liberals be willing to do anything to actually um, encourage students to become more passionate about subjects and, le- and actually learning about them, not just learning to pass exams for qualifications, but actually acquiring new skills, etc.? I think we're doing that. I think we're doing that by introducing new subjects, which are... Uh, ancillary to the national curriculum in the UK. I think we're doing that by trying to excite people about those subjects like you know, the education of what uh, Gibraltar used to be like and what uh, Gibraltar food is like, etc., etc. But beyond that, I think the system of education, the method of education has to change. If you look yes. at, our, at our manifesto, one of the things that we're talking about is introducing uh, tech teaching. And we're already starting to roll this out in one of the new St. Bernard's uh, schools, we're introducing tablet learning so that uh, teachers and pupils will be interacting, not even through a whiteboard, which was such a technological innovation not so long ago, but through iPads and Apple TV, etc. What that does is it changes the educational experience completely. You go from a didactic system of education where you tell people or, or children or pupils what it is that they need to remember, and uh, today that is the system we have. Um, we read what we need to remember, we study in order to remember the things that we need to have in our brain in order to pass the examination, um, to a new system which is experience-based learning. So uh, if, I could, if I could put it this way, we have a didactic system, there's sometimes a Socratic system which is the one where you talk to people and engage in discussion, yes. and then there's this experience-based learning. And the way that it was explained to me when I was looking at this uh, proposal Um, in fact we'd gone looking for it from different companies and we settled on one is that if you think of it this way when you need to remember something today when you're studying you need to read it a hundred times if you're not privileged enough to have a photographic memory and you really have to repeat it by rote to remember it if I asked you about something that you did on a recent holiday with your parents you're very likely to remember it without having to write it down a hundred times because you experienced it. You remember, exactly, you you remember when you went and did A, B, C, or D and you therefore don't need to, you therefore don't need to study it. If you are learning through experience on a tablet, in other words, if instead of 
having to remember the name of the king whose tomb was found by Howard Carter, instead of having to remember how many chambers there are in it, where they found the death mask and where they found the chariot, you're given an iPad, for example, to name one type of tablet, and you're allowed to explore by opening the door of the tomb, going in, turning left and finding something there, turning right and finding Mr. Carter sitting there talking to you. That sort of experience-based, I'm giving you a very basic yes, example, yes. that sort of experience-based learning is more likely to stay with you naturally and be available for your subconscious brain to bring up to your conscious brain when you're sitting to do an examination than having to sit there and remember something a hundred times over. And the, the, the teachers at um, St. Bernard's Middle School are now uh, working with this, with pupils. They're experimenting on how to make the best of this process and we want, then want to roll it out across middle schools and then slowly roll it out across secondary schools and, uh, and infant schools. Will that continue on to GCSE and a Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. All the way up. All the way right. up. There's a lot of that, I'm told, already going on sporadically, but this has to be organized by the department. And it's a process that has been rolled out very effectively in some model schools in the UK. We're working with a particular a technology company uh, and looking at the curricula that they've already established on a, on a technical basis for this type of teaching. It's... it's part of the national curriculum in the UK, it's already available. I mean, people just need to, if, to understand how much of this is available already. You just need to go to iTunes U and see yes, all of yes. the teaching that's available there. And it's adapted for different ages, it's not just for degree courses, it's very exciting. And statistically, if you look at the results of schools that have moved from the sort of didactic learning, where they had very bad results, to this system of education, I mean, the results are just astounding. Imagine if we implement that into a system that already has fabulous results. We should get to astounding quite soon. I'm glad to hear that from the GSLP levels, to be honest. Um, I think we should move on now. I'm sure you've heard about United Union's decision to affiliate themselves with your party. What's your opinion on that? And would it be different had they decided to um, decide unite with the GSD? Well, you have to understand the history of trade unionism, trade unionism in Gibraltar. The ASCR, which is the first political party in Gibraltar's uh, modern post-war history, is born out of the Transport and General Workers' Union and the work that is done at that time. The ASCR falls out with the TGW in about 1969, and the TGW then starts to work with other political parties. And in 1976, the TGW had a child, and that child is called the Gibraltar Socialist Labour Party. It was known first as the Gibraltar Democratic Movement, and then as the GSLP. And the GSLP is, is the child of that uh, TGW Labour Party in the UK affiliation. Uh, and that continued very successfully uh, until 1996, when the then uh, Transport and General Workers' Union uh, regional officer, Jaime Neto, left the union to become the candidate of the GSD, right? And so then the TGW and, you know, and the GSD became one, and the TGW would endorse the GSD in every election, uh, overtly and covertly. Yes. Um, that broke down in 2011 when Unite didn't support uh, any particular political party. But yesterday, um, you know, we were able to renew the relationship between the GSLP and, uh, and Unite, and it must always uh, remain a strong political relationship. Remember that in the UK, Unite and the Labour Party are one. 
and Unite in Gibraltar is part of Unite in the UK, and the GSLP in Gibraltar is a sister party of the Labour Party in the UK. And the rule book of the union, the constitution of the union, says it must be involved in the fight for the political transformation of society in keeping with socialist values. Now, the last time I checked, there's only one socialist party in Gibraltar. Therefore, the relationship between us is the most natural one. It is absolutely right that we should be working together. It was an aberration that we were not. I'm delighted to have been able to establish the relationship. And look, if people think that there's anything uh, strange about this, they need to pick up the history books. <laughs> well, you mentioned the AACR. And I actually have a question that was sent in by former MP Frank Delepiani. I'm just going to read it. He says... With mass migration into Europe and the massacre in Paris, the stay in Europe has weakened. Frank fears that UKIP and others will win the Brexit referendum. He wants to know what sum will be in the government kitty for the lean years ahead, and what plans do the GSLP have for further diversification of their economy and tax revenues? Frank was a, was a great minister. He's a man who spent a lot of time in service in the Royal Gibraltar Regiment, um, and then continued his service working with Sir Joshua Hassan, uh, for many years in in, in Parliament, um, and you know, he always asks questions which are which are pointed. But he needn't have asked me this question in your program because he just needs to go and look at our manifesto, which is a much heftier document than the manifesto or policy document presented by the GSD, which is a list of points, uh, some some of them uh, disjointed, um, and look at our national economic plan. Um, and we set out exactly what will be in our kitty in four years' time. We will have three hundred million pounds in our kitty, with a gross, uh, sorry, with a with a net debt of three hundred million pounds also. So you know, that would be the most advantageous position Gibraltar has been in for the past twenty years. We will have more cash in our pockets than we have had in the past twenty years, and a downside better than the position I was left in by the GSD when uh, I was elected and I was told by my then financial secretary, Dilip Daniel Tiradas, that the total amount left to spend at the end of the last financial year in office of the GSD was £2 million. I mean, this is, you must understand, this is not even the beginning of the wage bill of the civil service for one month. That's why we had to stop every government project. That's why we had to wait for the new financial year to kick in. And that's why, if there were to be any catastrophe facing the people of Gibraltar, not just a potential exit from, from the European Union or the single market or anything like that, if there is one pair of hands which can be considered safe in the running of the economy and the running of our public finances in particular, it's the GSLP liberal uh, pair of hands because you know, I, will, I will disclose the amount of usable cash reserve um, when the time comes, but it's a darn sight more, a darn, darn, darn sight more than the disgraceful two million pounds that I was left by the GSD, who now have the goal to pretend that we haven't managed our public finances properly. Somebody needs to step up and say to them, look guys, you left two million pounds behind. You lost four million pounds in a loan to OEM. Find an argument that's not got to do with public finances. And how do you think um, a Brexit would actually affect Gibraltar? Well, it depends what level of Brexit we're talking about. If the United Kingdom votes to leave the European Union, but to remain within the single market, then very little will change, at least initially. Because, of course, being within the European Union, being within part of that political union, gives the United Kingdom privileged access to the European Council. Um, it means that the United Kingdom is at the top table making decisions in Europe. Um, but, you know, we are not there. 
So we have the UK's protection at that top table, but we're not there. So for Gibraltar, immediately, it might not mean much. What will happen, of course, is there'll be an erosion of our European rights because Spain will continue at the top table without the United Kingdom being there to protect us. So every future directive will contain some nasty anti-Gibraltar mechanism, if not a specific clause, etc. If, however, the United Kingdom were to decide, having voted to leave the European Union, in the process of negotiation that would follow, that would take five to ten years, to also leave the single market, then we would have a huge problem because our financial services thrive on having access to the single market. In particular, insurance um, does a very good business, although it does a lot of it in the UK, and that doesn't depend necessarily on, on the single market. Uh, gaming relies on the single market to an extent, although there are barriers to trade when it comes to gaming. There's no freedom of movement of licenses uh, in gaming, etc. But look, if we were to leave the single market, then the challenge starts to become much, much greater. Not as great as if we had gone into the single market in goods also in 1973, something which we did not do. So we're already out of the single market in goods, and we have not been able to access it. It's a huge challenge, but we have to be ready to deal with the, the nature of the challenge when it's clearer. All right. So one of my last questions that was also sent in by somebody was, in what way is this GSLP party different to Bosano's GSP, GSLP from the 80s and the 90s? In no material way whatsoever. The ideology remains exactly the same. Look, you changed the character of the individual who is the leader. You changed the characters of the individuals that represent the party. Uh, Joe is still one of them. His stamina, his ability and his dedication is second to none. But we don't pretend to be a new GSLP. We don't pretend to have in any way changed our ideology or our ideas. You know, I don't go around saying that things that Joe did were wrong and uh, you know, denying uh, some of the, of the great projects that he did. In the GSD, for example, we see U-turn after U-turn where the things that Mr. Cajuana used to do are now decried by Mr. Fetum. You know, I am very proud of the things that GSLP did between 1988 and 1996, as I am proud of my uh, children. But, uh, you know, as they get older, I suppose I'll also realize that however proud of them I am, they may have done things which weren't quite so right. And we in the GSLP know that we did so much that was good between 1988 and 1996, and we know that we made some mistakes and that we were punished, in inverted commas, by the electorate for having made those mistakes. Uh, not all of them, by the way, uh, by by ministers whose names continue to be closely associated with our party. I mean, some of the mistakes were made by ministers whose names and surnames are now affiliated to other political parties. Look, so be it. We did things right, we did things wrong, but it's still the GSLP with its uh, paramount ideology of investment in education, investment in Gibraltar and the defense of our homeland. Well, thank you, Fabian. This is my last question. What is your personal ambition for Gibraltar in the future? My personal ambition is for a Gibraltar that continues to grow as a place where people can do business from around the world, as a place from which people can do business with the rest of the world, that our economy should continue always to boom, however, uh, whoever may be in administration, that the people of Gibraltar will always consider this only their home and no one else's, that we should always have untrammeled political control over the future of our nation, that our children and our children's children should want to live here and make it prosper and make it grow, and that what I have been able to do in the past four years might be insignificant compared to what the next Chief Minister of Gibraltar might achieve, whoever he may be.
right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best. Thank you very much indeed. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I definitely did. And I know I say that every week, but I am being genuine every week because I just love interviewing these individuals and these candidates and these ministers. So on another note, our next episode will be with the leader of the opposition and the leader of the GSD, Daniel Featham. And that will be aired on either Monday or Tuesday. And I hope you will listen to it. Finally, make sure you go out there and you vote this week and you like the Gibraltar Politics page on Facebook so you can actually contribute questions to our next episode with Mr. Featham. Thank you for listening. That is all. Goodbye.